Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight I'm joined by Andrew Gibson, who many of us regard as the foremost literary critic in contemporary England. Andrew has written, he's laughing there, but it's true. I can say it, he can laugh. Um, He's written a wonderful book on Joyce called Joyce's Revenge, another book pending on the formation of Joyce in the years up to 1915. He's the Professor of Literature and Theory at Royal Holloway College in the University of London. But he's also devoted a good deal of his life to the study of French critics, French ideas, most recently, of course, of Samuel Beckett. Andrew, when was your interest in all this first aroused, and in particular your interest in Joyce? Because it's fair to say, I think, that not too many English critics were deeply exercised by Joyce in the decades after the publication of Ulysses. I was reading Joyce from the age of 15 or 16, and without really knowing why, there was something that I identified in Joyce, as I did in a writer I haven't stayed with nearly so much, Dylan Thomas, for instance, that I found I had a kind of kinship with. Um, I didn't then go on and work on Joyce as an undergraduate, because, of course, you couldn't work on Joyce as an Oxford undergraduate in the late 1960s. It wasn't, wasn't uh, allowable. Um, I think my research interest dates from about around about the age of 30. Why do you think the English, have, some of them, have had so much trouble with Joyce, which is not to say the Irish haven't either? But, you know, you think of Virginia Woolf's famous line about the, the writing of a self-taught working man, a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples, all that stuff. Bloomsbury certainly, you know, affected to like him, but didn't really, did they? No, I don't think they did. And even now, I think the English attitude to Joyce is often at best ambiguous, at worst uncomprehending. I think there are probably two issues there. The first is the English antipathy to modernism, which was very much around when I was young and has only really, I think, to some extent, gone away over the past 20 years or so. And Joyce, of course, was seen and rooted abroad as a modernist par excellence. So Joyce was too fancy. He was too 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 experimental clever. He was too uh, innovative altogether. That, I think, has partly ebbed away, that kind of English failure to to understand Joyce. I think there's probably another deeper reason, at least so certainly my own way of reading Joyce would lead me to that conclusion. And that is that actually to, to read Joyce properly, you have to think England inside out because you're thinking England from an Irish perspective. That, yeah. for me, is the way to understand Joyce. You don't get Joyce if you don't do that. And the English don't really like thinking England inside out. Um, I'm very aware at the same time that over the years we owe a lot of our understanding of Joyce to English people like yourself, but going right back to someone like Frank Budgeon. He was a great admirer of the back views of women, especially when fashion allowed them to wear long and tight skirts, which, when lifted to avoid puddles, exposed to view a flutter of white petticoats, the frillier the better. Frank Budgeon, of course, a fellow Cornishman. Stuart Gilbert, of course, as well. Uh, 
who was a very, very English figure indeed, thoroughly English civil servant, who was a uh, very important early Joyce scholar. And maybe uh, reduced the turbulence of the book to a system with all those analogies yeah, with Homer. Yes, I don't. Yes, I think that's I think that's that's true. I think I think I have a, a real trouble with 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 Gilbert's kind of way of dealing with Joyce. But I, I think you're right. I think that again is interesting. I think one just puts it down to the tradition of eccentric individualism in English culture, really. Charles Peake, of course, yes. great London Joyce scholar to whom I owe a great deal in a certain kind of way, and up to a certain point, I see myself as continuing with that tradition. He, mm. he, he was entirely self-taught. His love of Joyce was entirely grew entirely out of his own uh, his own absorption in the text. Charles actually thought that Ulysses was set in London. I'm convinced of it. He couldn't see the difference. And and also there's Anthony Burgess who. Uh, fits your model very well because he was a kind of English, English writer who nevertheless became expatriate and wanted in a way to do a critique on England and did in some of his books. In Ulysses he dealt with a single day in Dublin and uh, ransacked the, all the possible resources, the waking mind. When it came to feeling his wake, all he could do was to turn to the sleeping mind and this was a fairly serious effort, you know, using a, again a locality like Chapel Izzard, which everybody could check on. Um, a kind of firm base from which the mind, the sleeping mind, could um, ascend into this weird empyrean he created. But it was a serious attempt. It was a difficult book to write. I mean, no man spends 17 years on a mere joke. There had been post-colonial readings of Joyce, of course, but none that really gave so much historical detail in the analysis of particular chapters. I'm thinking, say, about the... Uh, uh, Nestor chapter set in a school in Dorky where Stephen teaches in the morning. You, you, you kind of explained, well, what it was like in 1904, what the debates about education were. Uh, insofar as my work has been very kindly recognised for what it is, um, I think it was very much to do with the principle of historical saturation, um, steeping the text in historical context, pushing them back into those Irish and British Irish historical contexts in order to make the world that I think Joyce took to be crucial, Irish and British Irish, in order to make that um, seem very material in my reading of him. And that eventually I called a kind of historical materialism. I, I practice what I see as a Joycean historical materialism, not a Marxist historical materialism, but a Joycean historical materialism. Its terms are dictated by Joyce himself. As we know, he always thought very, very precisely, historically. Mr. Deasy stared sternly for some moments over the mantelpiece at the shapely bulk of a man in tartan filibegs. Albert Edward, Prince of Wales. You think me an old fogey and an old Tory, his thoughtful voice said. I saw three generations since O'Connell's time. I remember the famine. Do you know that the Orange Lodges agitated for repeal of the Union twenty years before O'Connell did, or before the prelates of your communion denounced him as a demagogue? You Fenians forget some things. Glorious, pious, and immortal memory, the Lodge of Diamond in Armagh the Splendid be hung with corpses of papishes, horse, masked and armed, the planter's covenant, the black north and true blue Bible, croppies lie down. Stephen sketched a brief gesture. I have rebel blood in me too, Mr. Deasy said, on the spindle side. 
but I am descended from Sir John Blackwood, who voted for the Union. We are all Irish, all King's sons. Alas, Stephen said. Everything in his books uh, is of the order of June 16th, 1904, in Ulysses, a single historical specific day. He is that precise about history. But as I went on, the more I went on, of course, one has at some point to get to grips with the fact that there is far more to Joyce than just historical context. There is also discursive context. One has to historicise the discourses, the language in Joyce. One has to understand Joyce in terms of the historicity, that is, the historical particularity of the languages that he plays with, that he adopts, that he with. Um, it was his genius to make great art out of what he called the orts and offals from the rich man's table. He's quoting mm. Shakespeare, isn't he? Or Stephen De Dedalus calls them the orts and offals from the rich man's table in chapter nine. He takes them, but he also produces a kind of art that is a kind of graffiti work a mm. scrawl all over English culture. It's a challenge to all orthodox conceptions of respectable culture too. And that I took to be Joyce's revenge. That, it seemed to me, that is, uh, if you like, freedom and justice at work in yes. Joyce. That's where it takes him. And that's what art can do. And art is, in a kind of way, a, a settling of the debt with the English in Joyce's terms. Well, I suppose it, it's a non-violent form of anti-colonial revenge yeah. uh, because words are weapons of a disarmed people. And I yes, thought one of yes. the wonderful examples you gave was about the Oxen of the Sun chapter. We all know that it goes through all the different styles of English from Anglo-Saxon down to American slang through everything in between. But I think you were able to show that Joyce was actually mocking some of those anthologies, those classic anthologies yeah. of English the literature. The Orson I mean, the yeah. anthologies were precisely circulating in the colonies. That, yeah, which that were was, brought that was to Ireland and to regions. India yeah. to train yeah. the natives yeah, in these train, languages. Yes, to train the natives and, and, in the right, and, in the right his, his revenge is just to, to say, well, you can play your greatest hits, but it doesn't mean I can't mock them. Yes, and also, you, you can play your greatest hits, and I can play around with your greatest hits. Not only can I play around with them, I can play around with them in a... In a a cheap, uh, anthologised form, and look what I make out of them. A temple. Before born babe bliss had, within womb one he worship. Whatever in that one case done, commodiously done was. A couch by midwives attended with wholesome food, reposeful, cleanest swaddles, as though forthbringing were now done, and by wise foresight set. But to this, no less, of what drugs there is need and surgical implements which are pertaining to her case, not omitting aspect of all very distracting spectacles in various latitudes by our terrestrial orb, offered together with images, divine and human, the cogitation of which by sejunct females is to tumescence conducive, or eases issue in the high, sunbright, well-built fair home of mothers, when, ostensibly far gone and reproductive, it has come by her thereto to lie in, her term up. Some man that wayfaring was, stood by house-door at night's oncoming. Of Israel's folk was that man, that on earth wandering far had fared. Stark Ruth of man his errand, that him lone led till that house. I, I'm wondering just about language and the attractions of an English that is used in a somewhat reformulated way by Irish people. Certainly I feel myself, as soon as I come here to Dublin, I feel an entranced 
by language. I feel gripped by language in a way I don't in England. And I think it's to do with a certain kind of inventiveness with the language that one finds on the street. It's something to do with the way in which often one finds Irish people doing it better than the English themselves, which was always the secret triumph of, of, of the Irishness and which Joyce, of course, takes to an extraordinary extent, a really grand conclusion. Your most famous book, probably your most famous, is called Joyce's Revenge. And was that Joyce's Revenge to take language and remap it? That was part of it, certainly. I, I mean, I, I think it's a very intricate question, Joyce's Revenge. And I think it shifts and modulates, however subtly and finely from one stage of his career to another. Um, people sometimes misunderstood that book and misunderstood my conception of Joyce insofar as they imagined that I thought that Joyce had a quintessentially alienated and violent relation to English culture. That was never part of my argument. My argument was that Joyce nonetheless knew the history and understood the history very profoundly, very seriously indeed, and recognised that something had to be done with it, something had to be done for it, something had to be done in the name of justice. And that is in large measure what the Joycean project is about, it seems to me. That does certainly involve language and involve la involves language in very, very complicated ways. It involves, as it were, knowing that one has supreme command of it and demonstrating it. Drum conjurers, you remember, where they speak the best English, Stephen Dedalus says. Um, it also involves destroying the language. Of Finnegan's Wake, he said, I, uh, this is not a book written in English, I, I, more or less. I have set out to destroy English. But then um, he said he'd give it back to them in the it, modified give form. Give it back to them, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, as you say that, about Richard Ellman telling me when I arrived at Oxford as his student in '73. Um, that he had taken the chair there in hopes of bringing about some kind of rapprochement between England and Joyce. Yes, his Joyce, of course, was a very different Joyce at that time, and his rapprochement wouldn't even for a moment have involved a thought of a rapprochement between England and Ireland, I don't think, or English culture and Irish culture, or a rethinking of the history, don't you think? I, it seems to me that Elman, whatever his virtues, as a, undoubted virtues as a scholar, and the debt we owe to him, nonetheless, didn't really interest himself in, in, in Joyce the Irishman. Or in the Irish context. He didn't so. get involved in the immense historical detail that you've excavated as a background, say, to each of the chapters of Ulysses. I think he thought of Ireland as a place that Joyce got out of in order to become modern. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think exactly. your understanding, which I would share, is that to be Irish was to be modern anyway, to be plunged into all the crises of the modern, mm. isn't that it? And also that whatever was at stake in Joyce leaving Ireland, it wasn't anything to do with forgetting Ireland or subsuming Ireland in sort of some grander abstract perspective. Some, sometime, you know, it seems to me that people are going to turn around in larger numbers and think how extraordinary it was that we read people like Joyce as though they had some kind of abstract idea in mind when they wrote, rather than a saturation in a history, in a culture, in people. It seems to me to be quite extraordinary. And I suppose, uh, if I can continue from that for a moment, that that's one of the reasons that I, I, I started doing the kind of work that I did, because it seemed to me self-evident that there was, if you like, a very ordinary human content to Joyce's work, and that actually that content, and it's, it's for want of a better way of putting it, real-world, real-life contexts were what Joyce was about. 
that the abstract ideas that have been attributed to him are just contemporary cream-offs, really. They're not nothing to do with what's there at the core of, the, of Joyce for me. Why do you think that that could happen? Is it that Joyce allowed Stuart Gilbert to write the book mapping Ulysses uh, onto, Ulysses, uh, onto the Odyssey and then Ireland becomes kind of secondary to all that? And it, we have to wait for decades for someone like you, an Englishman, to come along. No, no, I think return the book to its historical. I think setting. I think that's far too extreme, and I am not going to take the credit for doing this. And I can imagine how some of your listeners might feel if I did. There were Irish um, scholars doing the work even before me. Seamus Dean, of course, was enormously important for me. Just two or three essays, but terrifically good in the early eighties in Celtic revivals. So it wasn't just. Me. Oh, and there was Eamon Nolan did. Eamon, Eamon Nolan, well, Eamon and Nolan and I, of course, we, we went, we actually, I think, discovered this about each other quite a long time before she, even she published a book back in the late 80s. We knew that we were both heading in that kind of direction. Yeah. But there were other, other Irish scholars too. Um, I, I do want to defend myself against any kind of suggestion, that, I mean, which wasn't yours, but I always feel it could be there. And if my Irish friends weren't as kind to me as they are, they might say it, that I had been in some kind of way opportunist. A, there was a profound interest in the topic. B, there was a great B, need for what B, you did. B, there, but there was a lot of need for it to be done. There still is a lot of need for it to be done. That need is, uh, and on other ri Irish writers too, there's still an awful lot of work to be done. So if you like, where hist history for Stephen Dedalus is a nightmare from which he, he's trying to awake. History is a nightmare for me that I feel I want to know about. I, I think for many in the Irish elite in, through the 1980s and 90s, history was a nightmare through which most of them were th trying to sleep soundly. Yes, <laughs> and sorry. that was a part yeah. of the problem. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, if you look, yeah. at the curricular study of history was diminished in the 1990s in secondary schools. Mm. You, you, you had a situation where, in fact, you'd have to tell a lot of Irish kids a lot of the factual details yeah. in your book on Joyce simply to equip them then to go forward with the reading of no, the text? No. I mean, it seems to me that Joyce, like Beckett in a different kind of way, worked extremely hard to try and produce a transformative consciousness of history which did not deny it, which did not suppress it, which took the force of it, but also worked with it and on it. And that is... Um, that's that's um, the argument of uh, the strong spirit, which is the new book that's coming out next year on early Joyce. The the argument is has very very much to do with that. It's an extraordinarily tenacious, arduous, um, wearing work. That's what the books are about. They're not just works. They are a form of work, and the form of work for me it's it's art as a form of transformation, as a kind of transformation of historical consciousness. And do you think behind all that is a dream of freedom, political freedom, sexual freedom, but ultimately expressive I freedom? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a dream, but rather an ideal of freedom and justice, the principle of freedom and justice, which from, I think Joyce never let go of, though whether he actually believed in the possibility of emancipation, I leave that as a question mark at the end of the book. And, and in all this, do you ever feel that you might be a bit like Haynes at the start of the <laughs> You know that he, he's, he, remember he says... You're not going to let go of this, No, no, you, I've David? always asked no, you this. No, you've, you've always asked me one last that. time. Yes, yes. And this time you give me an answer. You know, it seems history is to blame. Haynes says it without doing the work. That's part of Joyce's yes. point. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, I mean, I think up to a certain point... If you really want me to throw up my hands and plead guilty, I will throw up my hands and plead guilty. But all I can say is that I do and have done the work. 
Yes. And I really and have done, you have, and I have done that, the work. And Haynes, what he says about Haynes, the sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense, immense debtorship for the thing done. Yeah. Now, you know, I hope very well, that I don't believe I incur the immense debtorship. The immense debtorship remains and is unpaid. There was, of course, an extraordinary concern with, with that idea of the English debt to Ireland from about 1880 to 1920. It's a very interesting and recurring, recurring theme. Joyce knew he was addressing it. After all, Haynes began. Stephen turned and saw that the cold gaze which had measured him was not all unkind. After all, I should think you were able to free yourself. You are your own master, it seems to me. I am the servant of two masters, Stephen said. An English and an Italian. Italian, Haynes said. A crazy queen, old and jealous, kneeled down before me. And a third, Stephen said, there is, who wants me for odd jobs. Italian, Haynes said again. What do you mean? The Imperial British State, Stephen answered, his colour rising, and the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. Haynes detached from his underlip some fibres of tobacco before he spoke. I can quite understand that, he said calmly. An Irishman must think like that, I dare say. We feel in England that we have treated you rather unfairly. It seems history is to blame. You have written a number of wonderful novels for children, and I'm very aware of Joyce as someone who describes childhood in a very vivid way. Do you think that the quarrel with the own place is shown by Joyce as beginning in those childhood years? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I mean, I still think that one of the most revealing moments in Joyce is the moment when he goes and confronts the rector of Clongos over the pandying, over the beating. There is something about the child's pure sense of and demand for justice in that moment that I take to be, to be crucial to Joyce and that I think never really leaves him. There is a certain kind of innocence, willed innocence, if you like, to a way of seeing and understanding the world that is there in childhood for Joyce and for Stephen Dedalus, and then has to be sustained. Childhood precisely is something you don't absolutely grow out of. Why don't you grow out of it? Because the child isn't familiar with the world. The child doesn't take the world for granted. The child doesn't automatically think that the way the world is is the way the world has to be. I sympathize, I identify very much with that in Joyce, and I, th I think it's uh, an extraordinary achievement. Father Dolan came in today and pandied me because I was not writing my theme. The rector looked at him in silence, and he could feel the blood rising to his face and the tears about to rise to his eyes. The rector said, Your name is Dedalus, isn't it? Yes, sir. And where did you break your glasses? On the cinder path, sir. A fellow was coming out of the bicycle house, and I fell and they got broken. I don't know the fellow's name. The rector looked at him again in silence. Then he smiled and said, Oh, well, it was a mistake. I'm sure Father Dolan did not know. But I told him I broke them, sir, and he pandied me. Did you tell him that you had written home for a new pair? The rector asked. No, sir. Oh, well, then, said the rector. Father Dolan did not understand. You can say that I excuse you from your lessons for a few days. Stephen said quickly, for fear his trembling would prevent him. Yes, sir, but Father Dolan said he will come in tomorrow to pandy me again for it. Very well, the rector said. It is a mistake, and I shall speak to Father Dolan myself. Will that do now? Stephen felt the tears wetting his eyes and murmured, Oh, yes, sir, thanks. 
The rector held his hand across the side of the desk where the skull was, and Stephen, placing his hand in it for a moment, felt a cool, moist palm. Good day now, said the rector, withdrawing his hand and bowing. Good day, sir, said Stephen. Do you think he retained something of that inner child, even through his adult writing years himself? I'm thinking of the way yeah. nursery rhymes break out all the time in the middle of Finnegan's Wake. Well, you can, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, my, 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 my friend Len Platt, the Joyce Scholar in London, who thinks that Finnegan's Wake is a, is a great tissue of dirty jokes, he could probably show me several thousand without trying very hard. He finds them all the time, but they're, child, they're childlike. Um, mm. they, there is a kind, there is a, an indulgence in Joyce in what is licit for the child but becomes illicit for the, for adult. the adult. Have you heard of one Humpty Dumpty? How he fell with a roll and a rumble and curled up like Lord Olaf a crumple by the butt of the magazine wall, of the magazine wall, hump helmet and all. He was one time our king of the castle. Now he's kicked about like a rotten old parsnip. And from Green Street he'll be sent by order of his worship to the penal jail of Mount Joy, to the jail of Mount Joy, jail him and joy. I, I was reading Finnegan's Wake with French students some weeks ago and came upon this word capelle, what name? But it is also the Irish word couple, which means a horse. And it's one of these linguistic puns that are all through the text. I'm very aware that you've worked a lot on French literature, Andrew. You know, ha has your work on French culture given you insights, new insights into people like Joyce? I think probably much less than most of my contemporaries who all got to Joyce through through the French as often as not, th through the French in translation some of the time as well. Um, more in Beckett, of course, because of the French Beckett than, than with Joyce. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, we think of Joyce and Beckett here in Dublin as sort of paired. But do you think that Beckett was greatly influenced by Joyce or did he just go off and do his own thing anyway? He says the most wonderful things about Joyce that clearly show that Joyce was, a, above all, I think, a moral example for him. That's what he keeps on coming back to. The things that Beckett says about Joyce have to do with the moral example that Joyce set him, that have, has to do with taking art seriously, taking art very seriously indeed. And if I am right, and I would like to think that I am, I hope I am, that's no mere question of the aesthetic in its own right, be the aesthetic as a sphere where, which preserves a kind of thought that one cannot find elsewhere, and that is a thought that has to do with, as it might be, questions of freedom and justice, though there might be other kinds of yeah. uh, very serious questions uh, that can be evolved too. And that, I think, is where Joyce is important for Beckett, and he never let go of that either. Um, as a literary influence, I'm not so sure. That's why I was asking you. I, I, I think Beckett kind of thought, all that's been done, I'll go and do something else. Yeah. And also, I, th I don't think I, I, I don't think one can minimise the importance of the fact that Beckett belongs to a very different Irish tradition to Joyce. Joyce belongs to a, an emergent, new Catholic and nationalist tradition um, propelled towards the future. Beckett belongs to an Anglo-Irish Protestant tradition playing out its end game in the in the twenties and thirties. And, um, and is is that one way of explaining the difference we all note between them? The famous point, Joyce put everything in. He was Baroque, he built cathedrals. Beckett left everything out. He was minimalist. He was pared down, almost pure. Fascinating idea, isn't it? One might indeed think of the difference between 
Joyce and Beckett in terms of, if you like, um, Chartres on the one hand, and on the other, a kind of austere, bleak chapel on the Yorkshire Moors. Um, Ulysses is best compared, in a way, to a cathedral. I think it's built like a cathedral. It has a ground plan like the cathedral. And you know he, he has all kinds of little notes about roses when he's writing Penelope, the last chapter. Uh, the last uh, bit of a cathedral to go in was, of course, the rose window. I'm convinced he, it's like, a, as it were, um, a cathedral done in black art. But it's kind of then religion by other means, Andrew, isn't it? And that continues outside the text. You know, Bloomsday is people on pilgrimage, people e eating holy food, people like you who are the rabbis who decode the sacred text. You know, it is a form of spilt religion, really, isn't it? I don't think that Joyce thought, uh, Joyce supposed that one ever got away from religion. And I certainly um, altogether think that Joyce... Um, was immensely, richly learned in Catholic tradition, that he knew he belonged to Catholic tradition, and that he saw himself as one of the great Catholic artists of Europe. He has sentences, of course, about that. One person, I think, very fruitfully compared to Joyce is Gaudi, hmm. great modern the Barcelona. Barcelona architect. And, of course, so intent on detail was Gaudi that when he built the Casa Batlogue, in Barcelona, he mm. actually put little bits and pieces from the building that had been demolished on the spot back into his own building. No one knew about this until they came across his diaries after his death. That's like the Gothic architects, you know, who used to build gargoyles, which remained undiscovered until they started flying planes over cathedrals. It's exactly the same. You do it for its own glory, for its own beauty. And do you think that Joyce saw that Catholic tradition central to European literature, working through Chaucer? working through Shakespeare. You know, he that says they, that. He they says were, that they were, they were imitating... A great, a great European Catholic tradition until, until, until Milton's Puritan transcript to the Divine Comedy. But it's almost Shakespeare's like Shakespeare's epileptic. You remember he says yeah. Shakespeare's epileptic and passionate genius, yeah. which is obviously not a, a quality he associates with the modern English. So in some ways the Jesuits who taught him might have been proud that ultimately they could answer for the man because he returned even English literature, to its deeper wellsprings. Declan, you would know much more about the Jesuit mindset than I do. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a great pleasure. More power to your hand, and I'm looking forward not just to this book on the young Joyce, but to another one you've hinted at that you might write on Finnegan's Wake. No, it's going to take 30 years. The book on Ulysses took 25, and I think... Finnegan's Wake is 30 years, but it might be my life insurance policy. We're all going to live to be 110, so you've bags of time. <laughs> James Joyce and Me was presented by Declan Kybert and the producer was Bernadette Comerford. The readings were by Barry McGovern. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.